1: From The Nation magazine, this is Start Making Sense, political talk without the boring parts. I'm John Wiener. Today we'll talk with historian Eric Foner about voting rights and voter suppression, about who gets to be a citizen, what rights undocumented immigrants have, and about the roots of mass incarceration. They all relate to the 13th, 14th, and 15th Amendments, part of the country's attempt to redefine citizenship after the end of slavery. And we'll also talk about the 50,000 autoworkers who went out on strike last Sunday. It's the first strike of auto workers since 2007. Jane McAlevey will comment. But first... The House of Representatives will begin a formal impeachment inquiry. Nancy Pelosi made that announcement Tuesday afternoon after dragging her feet on impeachment for months. The central issue, Donald Trump used money appropriated by Congress as foreign aid to pressure the head of Ukraine to come up with dirt on Joe Biden, dirt that Trump could use in the upcoming election. For comment, we turn to Jeet here. He's National Affairs Correspondent for The Nation. Jeet, welcome back. Good to be here. Of course, the question some Republicans are raising is, what if Hunter Biden, Joe Biden's son, really was engaging in corruption in Ukraine while his father was vice president? Would it be wrong for Trump to try to find out more about that
2: from Ukraine's president? Even if we stipulate for the sake of argument that Hunter Biden did something corrupt, it's not Trump's position as president to be conducting an investigator investigation and to use foreign leaders to aid him in that investigation. You know, that's the business of the Department of Justice. It's the business of the uh, Ukrainian political system. It's, uh, he's basically turning his power of the presidency, the office of the presidency, into an instrument for his own personal benefit and using congressional money, which is, you know, American taxpayer money. To, you know, help build his own uh, re election campaign. So the whole question of what Hunter Biden might have done or not done is immaterial. Trump's behavior would still be wrong.
1: And why do people say this seems like Trump's biggest scandal? Wasn't obstruction of justice in the FBI investigation of Russian interference in the election bigger? What about? All the ways he makes money from foreign governments off his hotels, that's a violation of the emoluments clause of the Constitution. Aren't those bigger?
2: I mean, all the obstruction of justice stuff, even if he did as president, you know, the, the root is stuff he did for the uh, election in 2016. And in some ways, this is a reprise of the allegations of the 2016 election that he sort of consorting with a foreign power for his election benefit, but he's doing it while president. So there's an abuse of presidential power, and that seems to be on a scale much bigger than any previous accusation. And in fact, I think in a lot of ways, it's, uh, I would definitely say it's bigger than Watergate. Like it, it's just a, a huge misuse of presidential power in the most corrupt way possible.
1: And I would add, he is doing it personally himself, which was never clear from Russiagate or the emoluments yes. issues. Yes.
2: That's right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. In other words, he had some sort of plausible deniability because it was the actions of his idiotic children. (laughs) Uh, But uh, yeah, I think uh, and I think there's a further aspect, which is that if he did get a favor or even if it was just like sort of, you know, this offer he made to the uh, Ukrainian president, you still have the fact that he's compromised the presidency so that the uh, president of the Ukraine has knowledge of Trump that can be used against him. Right. So he's compromised the presidency as well and opened it to blackmail.
1: So let's switch now and talk about the politics of the impeachment inquiry. Of course, there are a lot of reasons not to do this, which we've heard many times. Some of our friends say, what's the point of an impeachment inquiry in the House? Removing Trump from office requires a two-thirds vote in the Senate. The Senate Republicans are never going to do that. So this is a big waste of time. And really, we should be spending our time talking about the positive things that a Trump successor will do, Medicare for all, free college tuition, a $15 minimum wage. This is what's really important. This is what the Democrats should make their lead ideas. Isn't this the best way to remove Trump from office?
2: I'm not unsympathetic to that in the sense that I always think it's better to argue for what you're going to do rather than like depend on scandals. But the fact is that Trump is trying to interfere with the election and trying to sort of corrupt the election. So you can't like say, well, we need an election to solve Trump if he's also corrupting the election at the same time.
1: There's a quote from Trump who said on Monday, if a Republican ever did what Joe Biden did, referring to corruption in the Ukraine, if a Republican ever said what Joe Biden said, they'd be getting the electric chair right now. Close quote. Uh, What do you make of that kind of talk?
2: Well, it's the usual kind of, you know, crackpot uh, threatening language that Trump uses. Um, But it's also very much part of his strategy that he's used successfully so far, which is that if he's ever accused of corruption, it's not so much he didn't do it. It's like, well, the other side is bad as well. You know, like it's the uh, but her emails argument uh and unfortunately i i do feel that there's um uh, much of the accusation against joe biden personally is doesn't hold up but there's a smidge in the here which is um can be used by the republicans and i think will be used uh which is that there is something very shady about the fact that um, hunter biden had um uh, a position with a ukraine energy company uh that paid fifty thousand dollars a month so if
1: an impeachment proceeding begins, what will it look like? What will it be taking up?
2: Well, I mean, aside from this uh, current matter of um, sort of Ukrainian influence, or, uh, I think that like the whole um, Mueller report is kind of like a rich territory. I mean, it documents, you know, many cases of obstruction of justice. So i I feel like that would be more than fair, and I think that there are a lot of other issues you know involving the monuments that haven 't been raised by Congress yet, but which uh, you know an impeachment inquiry could definitely include so i I feel like there's like a kind of like a a rich tapestry of corruption to bring up
1: and there could be a separate article impeachment for each of these
2: It really depends on how they want to go like in in some ways, maybe the politically wise thing is to just focus on. Um, this ukrainian business and not get bogged down in, in all the other stuff uh because this is i mean i think that uh the political advantage of this is that it has this national security component and you know it could be a way of um, challenging republicans and i feel like there's a lot of indication that a lot of republicans are very uneasy about all this because they, and that they're not stepping forward to defend trump as they have in other cases
1: Let's just go back to the Republican argument that Hunter Biden's business dealings in the Ukraine were corrupt and had some effect on his father's work as vice president.
2: There's two things that have to be said about that. One of which is that this uh, matter has been investigated by journalists uh, repeatedly. And what they found so far is that Joe Biden is not implicated at all. There's no evidence whatsoever that anything Joe Biden did was uh, shaped by his son's Work in the uh, in Ukraine. On the other hand, there's this whole idea of like you know appearances, and it does look very bad that Hunter Biden, you know, the son of a senator, the son of a vice president, has had a long career working as a lobbyist and then worked uh, for this uh, Ukrainian business company and has other sort of foreign entanglements. and um, Unfortunately, this is very common in America, you know, where like uh, there always seems to be jobs. For the children of powerful people uh you know like yeah, megan mccain is on the view for no discernible reason <laughs> and that, that's unfortunate i mean like uh hunter biden uh i would encourage the listeners to look up the profile in the new yorker he's a very colorful person who's had like a long and kind of storied history and to be honest you know like i wouldn't trust him to run a candy store let alone be on the board of a company so it's the, the fact that he benefited from his name is tr- is troubling. Uh, but that's very distinct from anything Joe Biden might have done.
1: Jeet here writes about Trump's biggest scandal for thenation.com. Jeet, thanks so much for talking with us today.
2: Oh, good to be here, as always.
1: Now it's time to talk about rights, voting rights, birthright citizenship for the children of immigrants, the right of minorities to equal protection. All of those rights come not from the Bill of Rights in the Constitution. Instead, they resulted from the Civil War and Reconstruction, which expanded our rights dramatically. For that history, we turn to Eric Foner. He's a Pulitzer Prize-winning historian who teaches at Columbia He writes frequently for the New York Times op-ed page and The Nation, where he's a member of the editorial board. He's written many award-winning books. The new one is The Second Founding, How the Civil War and Reconstruction Remade the Constitution. Eric Foner, welcome back. Good to talk to you, John. Well, today we live in a time, this is a quote, when principles which we all thought to have been firmly and permanently settled are being boldly assaulted and overthrown. Who said that? Was it Joe Biden?
3: (laughs) No, it was Frederick Douglass in the 1890s who was commenting on the rollback, as they call it nowadays, of so many of the rights that African-Americans had achieved uh, in the aftermath of the Civil War this was when the right to vote was being taken away from black men when black education in the south was being starved of money so douglas was pointing out a basic fact which is that rights can be gained and rights can be taken away and my book talks about putting powerful new rights into the constitution but then later many of those rights being abrogated with the acquiescence of the entire nation and the supreme court
1: well the rights we're talking about here are the 13th Amendment, which abolished slavery. The 14th Amendment established birthright citizenship and equal protection. And the 15th put the right to vote in the Constitution. We call these the Reconstruction Amendments. They were all passed after the Civil War to deal with the issues raised by the Civil War, which is why the first one, the 13th, abolished slavery. But Congress didn't stop there. Why not?
3: Well, f- first of all, abolishing slavery, of course, is a great achievement for humanity and the, the American uh, Republic, but it doesn't tell you what is going to come after slavery. What are the rights that these four million emancipated slaves are going to enjoy? What role will they play in American society? Will they be citizens? Will they be uh, equal citizens? Will they have a political voice? So, in a sense, What follows the 13th Amendment is trying to work out the consequences of the 13th Amendment, the consequences of the abolition of slavery in this country. The 14th Amendment and the 15th Amendment, as you said, established the citizenship of black people, established the equality before the law of all people in the United States, and gave black men the right to vote, which very, very few had enjoyed in the period before the Civil War.
1: All three Reconstruction amendments empowered Congress to enforce their provisions. But didn't all amendments to the Constitution do that? Uh, No, they didn't.
3: Uh, In fact, in many parts of the Constitution, the enforcement mechanism is very uh, unclear. The Bill of Rights, which establishes, you know, most of our basic civil liberties— does not have an enforcement clause. It's not clear who's supposed to guarantee our freedom of speech or trial by jury, etc. So these three enforcement clauses, as you say, at the end of each of the three amendments, were actually a major departure. They, Congress wanted to make sure that they retained the power to kind of make, sh- to be certain that these rights were being guaranteed. And if they if they were being violated, Congress wanted the power to step in and uh, remedy the situation, as they tried to do uh, a good number of times during Reconstruction.
1: And the big change here with the previous amendments, especially the Bill of Rights, is the Bill of Rights restrains the power of the federal government. The 13th and 14th and 15th expand the power of government. The original Bill of Rights sort of sees government is the problem, to use a recent formulation. The Reconstruction Amendments take the opposite view, that government exists to advance and, and defend our rights.
3: Yes. Uh, as Charles Sumner said, uh, these amendments made the federal government the custodian of freedom. It's not just government, it's which government. The Bill of Rights restrains the national government. It begins with the words, Congress shall make no law. It restrains Congress from interfering with your freedom of speech, let us say. Uh, before the Civil War, the Bill of Rights did not apply to the states. The states could suppress your freedom of speech. They did try to give a anti-slavery speech in South Carolina. They wouldn't allow that. But that wasn't a violation of the Bill of Rights, because it wasn't the federal government doing that. Now, after the Civil War, this completely changes. It is that Congress is empowered. Congress shall have the power, not Congress shall make no law. And the states are the ones who are seen as a danger to liberty. The 14th Amendment says, you know, no state can deny you the equal protection of the law. Congress felt that the, because of slavery, because of the Civil War, because of the ideology of states' rights that had been so central to slavery, there was a need to empower the national government to protect the rights of citizens against violations in the states.
1: Well, we're in a political season now, so let's look at the 15th Amendment establishing a right to vote. How come the right to vote was not in the original Constitution? Was that just an oversight?
3: Well, the original states, uh, 13, wanted to be able to regulate the right to vote by themselves. And each state, even up to today, each state has different voter requirements. You know, whether in some states you have to have a certain kind of ID to vote, in some states you have to live the, have lived there a certain amount of time or not. The provisions of the Constitution in the amendments relating to voting are all sort of negative. Fifteenth Amendment says you can't deny anyone the right to vote because of race. But there are many other grounds you can deny someone the right to vote. In Reconstruction, the radical Republicans wanted a positive amendment. They said, no, we want an amendment which uniformly gives every adult male, unfortunately not women in their view at that time, every adult male citizen should have the right to vote, and that's what the Constitution should say. Uh, If they had managed to do that, it would have solved a lot of problems that came later, including today with voter suppression laws. But the states, even northern states, wanted to keep their own Voting requirements. So they didn't, the, the Republicans in Congress didn't feel they could get an amendment which created a uniform voting uh, you know, system for the whole country. They couldn't get that ratified by three quarters of the states, which is necessary.
1: The 15th Amendment establishes the right to vote in the Constitution for the, for the first time, and it doesn't mention women. On the other hand, it doesn't mention men either.
3: It's just about race. There's nothing in the 15th Amendment that says you can't allow women to vote, and indeed, by the late 19th century, a number of states did allow women to vote. Remember, in 1860, on the eve of the Civil War, free African Americans could vote with the same qualifications as whites in only five states, all of them in New England and with very tiny black populations. They could not vote in Ohio. They could not vote in Pennsylvania. They could not vote in Illinois, Lincoln's home state. Uh, So enfranchising black men, even though there were limits to that amendment, was an amazing transformation in the body politic of the United States. And, of course, it led directly to the election of many, many hundreds of African-American men to public offices in the Reconstruction South. So it, it launched this experiment in interracial democracy which was a very remarkable thing for you know 19th century America.
2: Let's
1: talk about the 14th amendment. It guarantees equal protection of the laws. You said the 15th amendment is for citizens. Is the 14th for citizens is or does it give equal protection to children from Guatemala or Honduras? who've been separated from their parents after crossing the border. Do they have any rights here in the land of the free? The language of the 14th Amendment, Section 1, is very interesting. On the one hand, it begins
3: by talking about citizens. Any person born in the United States is a citizen. Now, the people you just mentioned who cross the border, they're not citizens because they were not born in the United States. They might, in the future, be able to become naturalized citizens. But if one of those people has a child in the United States, that child is a citizen. No question about it. That child born in the United States, it doesn't matter who the parents are. It doesn't matter what the legal status of the parents is. The child born in the United States is a citizen. And no state can take away the privileges and immunities of citizens, according to the 14th Amendment. It doesn't say exactly what those are. But later, it says no person can be denied equal protection of the law. No person. Person is a broader category than citizen. What's happening at the border now, however, is a little different because the 14th Amendment is mostly about states doing this. No state can deny you equal protection of the law. And all the reprehensible things going on at the border are being done by the federal government, not by the states. The ACLU is currently in court uh, litigating the question of whether people who cross the borders, whether they have a right to a hearing, a right to some kind of due process from the federal government, even though they're not American citizens. You know, with the current Supreme Court, I'm certainly not willing to make a prediction as to how much credence will be given to the rights of these people. and. You know, one of the lessons, as we said before, of the whole Reconstruction period and its aftermath is that um, a conservative Supreme Court can can take away rights which people thought they uh, previously enjoyed.
1: Okay, let's talk about the 13th Amendment, which abolished slavery. But I thought Lincoln abolished slavery with the Emancipation Proclamation, you say. The Emancipation Proclamation was the largest act of slave emancipation in world history. Everybody knows Lincoln freed the slaves. Is, is everybody right. wrong? They're partly right
3: and partly wrong. The Emancipation Proclamation declared free about 3.2 million slaves. That's more than any other single act like that in, in history that, that I'm aware of. But there was still about three quarters of a million who were not covered by the Emancipation Proclamation. These were the slaves in the four border states, uh, Delaware, Kentucky, Maryland, Missouri, that remained in the Union. They did not join the Confederacy, even though they were slave states, and therefore the proclamation, which was a military measure against the Confederacy, did not apply to them. And Lincoln also exempted some parts of the South. So you have three-quarters of a million who are not declared to be free on uh, January 1st, 1863. Uh, The other point, though, is that freeing individuals, even large numbers of them, doesn't end slavery. Slavery is created by state law, and those laws have to be repealed to really abolish the institution of slavery, or superseded by a constitutional amendment, which is what eventually happens. I am not in any way trying to minimize the importance of the Emancipation Proclamation, which changed the character of the Civil War very dramatically, but it did not end the institution of slavery.
1: There's some fine print in the amendment abolishing slavery that most of us hadn't noticed until the last few years. Where is slavery permitted in the United States?
3: Well, it says uh, neither slavery nor involuntary servitude, except as a punishment for crime. Prisoners can be subject to involuntary labor. Now at the time the 13th Amendment was passed, uh, very few people noticed it at all. It was almost like boilerplate language. That language was in the constitutions of most states at that time north and south, the idea of prisoners working. You have to remember that there were very few prisoners at that time. This was not mass incarceration or anything like that. There were tiny numbers of prisoners and prisons. And you know, some states thought, well, they should work to help pay the cost of the prison. But what happens, of course, and tragically, is that after the end of Reconstruction, the southern states used this to create a giant system of convict labor. They lease out convicts, almost all of them black, not all, but the vast majority black. They lease them out to uh, work on plantations or mines under terrible conditions. uh, Many of them die. uh, And, of course, it's on involuntary labor. They're not paid or anything like that. They have no uh, (laughs) right to complain about their working conditions. That's all allowed by the courts because of this prisoner exemption in the 13th amendment at the time nobody virtually even noticed it you read all the debates in congress it's barely mentioned you read the press debates about the 13th amendment very very few newspapers uh, even noticed it and most historians have pretty much ignored including me i have to admit me too have, have ignored it until very recently when mass incarceration of course is a major public issue and then a few years ago there was that documentary 13th which expose the extent of prison labor at the moment.
1: You've described how the ambiguity that was written into many of the Reconstruction Amendments opened the door to decades and centuries and more than a century of conflict over the meaning of terms like equal protection and the right to vote. Don't you wish the people who wrote the Reconstruction Amendments had done a better job
3: uh, no, I don't, actually. I think it's good that they, they wrote in terms of general principle, not specific rights, because if you start listing specific rights, you may miss some that, that are not important when you are writing, but become, le- for example, the most famous 14th Amendment decision of the Supreme Court recently was the gay marriage decision denying people the right to mar- states denying people the right to marry because of sexual orientation is a violation of equal protection of the law. Well, the people who were writing the 14th Amendment in 1866 were not thinking about gay marriage, right? That was not on the political agenda at that time. Um, so if they had begun just listing all sorts of rights, they would have certainly left that out. But what they did was put these general principles into the Constitution, which have expanded enormously in the 20th and into the 21st century. They weren't really thinking about equal rights for women, but the language of equal protection allowed people like Pauli Murray and Ruth Bader Ginsburg to use the 14th Amendment to attack laws that discriminated on the basis of gender. And that was totally plausible, given the general language of the uh, 14th Amendment. Also, people like John Bingham, who wrote the first section pretty much, they wanted to leave the door open to future expansions they They, they understood you can 't predict what fifty years from now, a hundred years from now are going to be you know uh, is going to be on people 's minds, but we can at least create a situation where the principle of equality can be applied that 's why they said Congress will have the power to enforce this fifty years later, may Congress may think, well. There's a different, you know, issue here, but the principle of equality can be enforced with regard to it. So actually, I think the ambiguity is a good thing, and it's a source of power. If we ever get a better Supreme Court, which maybe we will one of these days, there's a lot of latent power in those three amendments that have never been used really by the courts, which could allow a more vigorous protection, particularly of racial justice in this country, than the courts have allowed in the last uh, 30 or 40 years.
1: Eric Foner, his terrific new book is The Second Founding, How the Civil War and Reconstruction Remade the Constitution. Eric, thanks so much for talking with us today.
3: Thanks for having me on, John.
1: The UAW is on strike against General Motors for the first time since 2007. For comment and analysis, we turn to Jane McAlevey. She's the new strikes correspondent for The Nation. She's also now a senior policy fellow at the UC Berkeley Labor Center. Uh, Her third book, A Collective Bargain, Unions Organizing and the Fight for Democracy, will be published January 1st. Jane McAlevey, welcome back.
4: Thank you. Great to be here.
1: Well, how come the UAW is striking General Motors now after a dozen years without a strike?
4: Yeah, I think uh, several reasons. Um, the first is that workers learn to strike and have the confidence to strike by watching other workers strike and win and you yourself are sitting uh, in los angeles which was the ground zero for one of the most magnificent strikes that's happened in the last few decades in this country um so you can see a through line between the education strikes that began in earnest in early 2018 and rolled through the country to the stop and to the to the Marriott strike, by the way, that that happened last fall, to then the L.A. teacher strike, and then Oakland, and then a bunch of other smaller strikes, um, and so it, it just it makes good sense for workers whose contract expired, fighting a company that the American taxpayers bailed out to the tune of 11 billion. That's with the B dollars, and what the auto workers at General Motors received in response was several plant closings. Uh, and more proposals for a concessionary contract. That is what leads to a strike.
1: And I understand General Motors has been doing pretty well in the last couple of years.
4: General Motors has been raking in huge profits, and, and I think for, for for the average worker, when you watch um, your employer raking in billions in profits, and then turn around and say, "Well, you know, we thought we, you know, we, it might be, and we'd love to give you, you know, you and your family and your community some more money." But, you know, now we have this downward pressure because as a, as a leadership of the corporation, we've been such buttheads. We didn't realize that electric cars and fossil fuel issues might lead to downward pressure in the auto industry. So we neglected to pre-think the clear pressures of the climate justice movement that were facing us and you know now we need to use all that profit that we made, you know, and reinvest it, you know, in some new technology. And so we can't afford to pay you and we're gonna close more plants. And the workers are pissed, and they should be. They were double taxed, right? They 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 were American taxpayers who like bail their own bosses out, right, to the tax system. And then they took concessionary contracts coming off of the Great Recession. And then this time last year Basically, the first announcements come of the closing of the Lordstown plant, then the Hamtramck plant. I mean, you know, enough is enough. So
1: let's talk specifically about some of the issues in the strike. For me, one of the most interesting ones is the way temporary – it's not just about wages for the full-time union members. Temporary workers are a big issue for the union in this strike. Let's talk about that.
4: First of all, most strikes are not about wages, and working conditions for the existing workers. I mean, it, I just want to say that. Yeah. I can't say that enough because it's a, it's a myth of simple and lazy journalism and the bosses that workers walk out for wages. I mean, like, yes, wages are an issue, but in every strike I've had the pleasure of being involved in, which has been quite a few It was never the leading issue, never. And I don't believe it is in the GM strike either. They're striking for their dignity. They're striking to hold their corporation accountable to the American taxpayer and to the communities that they are abandoning. And, yes, this contract, they need to make those temporary workers whole. They need to give them a pathway immediately to become full workers. The the General Motors Corporation is doing what so many companies are doing in this country in just the latest round of insults of how they make the American worker and the American worker's family and community unstable, which is you, you hire a worker by the thousands who works right next to another worker. One is paid $15 an hour. One is paid $29 an hour and covered by the union contract. And the two workers are doing the exact same work. It's not just on the part of the corporate class what we call two-tiering a contract that is not simply to save money, though obviously it's to save money. It's also a deliberate strategy on the part of capital and corporations to break worker solidarity, to create a less stable union, to begin to create ruptures among the working class inside the, the, the walls of the workplace. So the workers that I've spoken to so far who are involved in the General Motors strike have said resoundingly, that their core demand is one around keeping open some of the plants that are being threatened with closure right now that are planned to be closed, but they're still open. That's actually very important. Like the Lordstown plant is still open. It's scheduled to close in December, so there was like no time like now but to go on strike because, you know, once a plant actually closes and the machinery stops working, things get much more complicated. So they've got a plant with thousands of workers that is still working that is scheduled for closing, So that's a core demand in that strike is you keep that plan open and you repurpose it for some electric car or something creative that we're going to need in this country, right? So or trucks that are electric or something. But the, the issue of the temporary workers is absolutely an equal and core demand. and. John, it's not even just temporary. There's actually two sets of workers that they have to make whole with the rest of the workers. There's temporary workers. There's several thousand of them across GM now working side-by-side side with other workers, and they're, re- they're literally getting like $15 an hour, which mm. is just an insult for an auto worker and and should be for most workers, frankly. But And then there's a second tier of workers who actually are being covered by the union contract that came out of that recessionary period as well um, in 08 and 09, and they're, they're actually – in the union, and they're making, I think, I'm not positive, I think it's like 21. So they're they're six or seven ahead of the temp workers, but they're still structurally behind the regular workers. And that's that's the devil of the detail of what's called a two-tiered yeah. contract, where for no reason except that the boss had more power than the workers at the moment of the contract was settled, um, a bunch of workers who are coming on after the higher date of the contract are going to make less for no reason except corporate greed.
1: The weird thing about this strike is I think it's the first one where a Republican president is pressuring the company – um, I guess on behalf of the workers, Trump has been a frequent antagonist of the of General Motors and the other uh, auto companies for moving their plants to Mexico and firing people in the United States. And one of his big claims is that he's going to bring those plants back to the United States. He's met with Mary B- uh, Barra, the new head of GM. How important is this a factor in the GM strike right now, do you think?
4: First of all, let's acknowledge the evil genius that is the orange and guy, because he's a reality star, TV star, and he understands that this is a big moment and that Americans are rooting for these workers. What's interesting is Americans were also rooting for the L.A. teachers. Last I looked, they were also rooting for the West Virginia teachers, a bunch of women and women of color, and you didn't see that same man standing up with them, but I digress. So (laughs) why is he doing this? It's electorally a brilliant move for him. That's all it is. And by the way, it's so cynical because – if Trump gave a shit about those workers, he would have been pounding and using the desk of the presidency last fall when Mary Barra announced the closing of Lordstown. No, it took, wor- it took the workers going out on strike to drag him in like looking for an electoral moment, as does all the other, you know, people running for president in this country. And everyone's going to want to be showing up in those picket lines. But, yeah, this guy's going to come, too, because, you know, there's workers in electorally significant swing states that he won by the narrowest of margins, um, and he wants to be able to ride on a high horse. Look, kind of brilliant strategy on his part. Again, he's, you know, when people call him stupid, I always say wrong word. He's an evil genius. (laughs) The one good thing, I think, is... Every single presidential candidate wants a piece of supporting these workers, and that may be one reason that we can feel hopeful, that despite the inept top officials of the union, the workers may win despite them, because it's a, it's, it's, they're geographically strategically located in terms of the electoral map in this country, and you've got every single presidential candidate tripping over themselves. But I think that no matter who intervenes, no matter what kind of leverage is brought to bear, The rank-and-file workers, the 49,000, are the only ones who deserve the credit for whatever victory plays out in this strike. What what we have to keep clear is that Trump himself, when he ran for office in those states in 2016, he's quoted as saying, no plants closing in these states on my watch. Well, you lied, because the the plant-closing plan has been in place for quite some time. It's only... Because the workers for their own agency have walked off the job that the issue of him now intervening is resurfacing. He, he failed those workers. That plan is scheduled for closure. So it's their own action that's forcing the crisis, which is what a beautiful strike does. It forces a crisis for the power holders. And the workers are forcing the level of a crisis that is making everyone pay attention to them. And that's why strikes matter.
1: Jane McAlevey, she's the nation's new strikes correspondent. She wrote about the UAW strike against GM for TheNation.com. Thank you, Jane. Great to have you on the show.
4: Thank you, John. Always good to be here.
1: Start Making Sense, a podcast from The Nation magazine, is co-produced by the L.A. Review of Books and recorded at the studios of Emerson College, Los Angeles located in the heart of Hollywood, with technical assistance from Justin Allen. The theme music for our podcast is by Barcelona Afrobeat, licensed by Creative Commons. Our recording engineer is William Broughton. Alan Minsky is our senior producer. Frank Reynolds is our executive producer. Annie Shields is the nation's engagement editor. D.D. Guttenplan is editor of the nation. Katrina Vanden is publisher and editorial director of the nation. For more principled progressive journalism from The Nation, you can subscribe to our print and digital magazine online at thenation.com podcastsubscribe podcast subscribe. With this special discount for Start Making Sense listeners, you can get digital access to all of our articles for less than $1.50 a month. You can have our print magazine delivered to you for just $0.60 cents an issue, Go to thenation.com slash podcast subscribe. You can find out more about the Start Making Sense podcast at thenation.com, and you can subscribe to Start Making Sense wherever you get your podcasts, at Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or Pocket Casts. I'm John Wiener. Tune in to Start Making Sense next week for more political talk without the boring parts.